Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to ask the Mayo mom. What we find is that with the people who have chronic pain, it really can become overwhelming and overshadow almost all of the other aspects of their life. And when chronic pain happens to children, it not only affects their lives, but the family as well. Many parents feel powerless to alleviate their child's suffering and have difficulty finding the appropriate treatment. So one of the things that we think is so important is to let the kids know your pain is real, we hear you. And that alone can be really healing because one of the mm -hmm. most frustrating things that we hear all the time is people feel like um, mm -hmm. they're not believed. Here is Dr. Angela Matkey, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic's Children's Center and host of Ask the Mayo Mom. Today, we will be discussing pain and more specifically chronic and debilitating pain in children and adolescents. Joining us for this discussion are two experts from Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Our first guest is Dr. Tracy Harrison, who is the current medical director of the Mayo Clinic Pediatric Pain Rehabilitation Center and the former director of the Pediatric Acute Pain Service at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. She is board certified in pediatric anesthesia, pain medicine, and palliative care, and is also trained in medical acupuncture. You can follow her on Twitter at Tracy Harrison, Dr. Tracy Harrison and her website called preemptpain.com. Our second guest is Dr. Cynthia Harbeck-Weber, a clinical child and adolescent psychologist and also the clinical director of Mayo Clinic's Pediatric Pain Rehabilitation Center. Dr. Harbeck-Weber has also worked at Mayo Clinic for over 25 years with children, adolescents, and young adults with chronic pain in inpatient, outpatient, and day treatment programs. Through her passion for helping these patients, she also helped co-found the Pediatric Pain Special Interest Group through the Society of Pediatric Psychology and has also served as past president. So please send in your questions about our topic today, and we will try our best to review them during the live broadcast. Dr. Harbeck-Weber, Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for joining me today. We're happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Dr. Mackey. I mean, both of you understand the magnitude of, of why talking about this topic is so important for families out there and for patients out there and for people that are in um, the trenches with their child suffering from chronic pain. And I want to get started today by um, really starting to understand what is the definition and the difference between acute pain versus chronic pain and when does it become chronic? Mm -hmm. Uh, so <clears throat> acute pain is actually a warning signal. I mean, it's something that's very uh, necessary for our survival. And it signals, you know, that some activity that we're doing um, could potentially result in some sort of tissue damage or some sort of a problem with our body. So it's actually a very good warning signal. Um, on the other hand, chronic pain is not a um, helpful signal. Um, it actually seems to be a distorted signal. And uh, chronic pain is defined as something that, um, uh, pain that is on a, occurs on a pretty regular basis uh, for about three to six months. Uh, and like I said, it's not a very helpful signal at all. And most important is when chronic pain is treated like acute pain, that's when you get into some problems. Mm -hmm. um, so how does that acute pain kind of become the chronic pain where we could get into some problems if it's continued to be treated like it's an acute form of pain where it's a harmful signal? Mm -hmm. So I really think um, 
good pain treatment begins with the treatment of acute pain, right? Because acute pain um, is basically uh, goes into that spectrum. It's just a transition that after a period of time, it transitions into chronic pain. So I think it's very important that when we treat even acute pain, we approach it in what they call that biopsychosocial model. So it's not just the particular nociception or the way that the pain is transmitted in the body, but it's our emotions. It's what the pain means to us. It's um, about uh, the ability to remain and, and maintain, get back to that functioning, even when you have that acute pain. So that is very, very imperative to approach it in that biopsychosocial model so that you decrease the chance of it um, progressing into that chronic pain, because that chronic pain is when you, like I said, are treating it um, like it's a it's a hurtful signal. So you keep uh, holding back on your activities, you miss out on the things that you enjoy doing. And in that way, we believe that that really increases the volume of the pain sin signals that then um, is responsible for that chronic pain. Mm -hmm. Is it kind of like a positive feedback where it just kind of intensifies it if all those other lifestyle things are changed? Absolutely. And the thing is, is that it's, um, you know, we have to have some sort of a normal idea that 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 pain is something that um, is a normal part of our life. And again, we have the responsibility as medical providers to assure that we are treating the pain appropriately, but at the same time that we have to ask people to get back to um, transitioning back into those normal activities, even despite the fact that they have pain. Mm -hmm. And I think as we, if we as medical providers really um, approach that all together and really give that message to pa parents mm -hmm. and patients that will be very good, you know, to be kind of like in that, in that teamwork, because mm -hmm. um, chronic pain also comes about when your providers seem like they're fearful or, or patients or, or parents are fearful of their mm -hmm. pain. And we have to do what we can to kind of minimize that, but at the same time have a responsibility to treat it uh, in many different ways. That's really helpful to me, for me to hear as a primary care provider, because, you know, one of the things we ask every patient on rooming is what's your pain level. Um, and, but another thing that I uh, work with my patients on in, their, in the primary care setting is understanding that all of us have emotions too. So if I can start to work in, we all have emotions and we're all going to have big emotions sometimes and we're all going to have pain sometime, would that be an appropriate message to be giving my patients? Mm -hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is that if you look at the, the definition of um, acute pain, I mean, it does bring in, it's not just that transmission of pain, but it's filtered through our brain um, mm -hmm. and our emotions. So that's not, um, that's a very normal human thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very good um, message to be giving to your patients. Okay. Um, and for parents to be giving to their children as well, that may be listening to this. So absolutely. Um, do we know how many children um, may be experiencing chronic pain? <clears throat> so um, the estimates actually vary. I mean, anywhere between, you know, 20 to 35% of children worldwide have chronic pain. Um, there's a subset of those, maybe 10% of children that actually show those features of chronic pain. Um, and those are the types of patients that come into our awareness uh, in our pain rehabilitation program. Um, and that's what's very debilitating and um, just really is extraordinarily expensive as far as lost productivity, um, and uh, medical care and uh, different services. 
Okay. Um, so you, you mentioned kind of like the impact, um, and how it can be, you know, so, um, overwhelming and devastating for the, the child and their family. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how it affects the, the child, the teen, the young adult? Yeah, I, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is when someone has chronic pain, it's really frustrating and it is um, obviously painful. It takes a lot of energy just to get through the day sometimes and really cope with the symptoms. Mm-hmm. I think one of the frustrating things is sometimes um, the through their best efforts, the medical system can't find the cause of the chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we um, think is so important is to let the kids know your pain is real. We hear you. Um, And that alone can be really healing because one of the Mm -hmm. most frustrating things that we hear all the time is people feel like um, Mm -hmm. they're not believed by family members, maybe by the uh, medical professionals, by um, friends. And so one of the healing things we can do is just let them know we do believe them. And that can really help with that frustration. I think the, the, what we find is that with the people who have chronic pain, it really can become overwhelming and overshadow almost all of the other aspects of their life. So if you have chronic pain, you might find that it's really hard to do the things that are important to you. Hard to go to school, hard to hang out with your friends, um, hard to even maybe have dinner with your family. Mm -hmm. And so not only are they frustrated by dealing with the pain, but now they're not able to do the things that they enjoy And then that can impact mood. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you um, are starting to struggle with mood and energy level, that makes it even harder to do the things that you want to do. And then along the way, sometimes anxiety enters it as well, because, you know, if you haven't been in school for several months, the thought of going back can can be really hard um, just because now I'm behind and I don't, you know, I don't know if my friends are even still my friends. And Um, Then there's also just the anxiety about the pain. Will this get better? Um, Mm -hmm. Can I still go to college even though I have pain? Um, So it it really can be quite overwhelming um, for the patients. And they really do, I think, benefit from a lot of support from the medical professionals as well as parents and families. Mm -hmm. How, How does this impact families? I think, you know, I would say really the same thing. Um, Mm -hmm. When one person has pain, it can become overwhelming for the whole family. Mm -hmm. Um, Because often the parents are trying to figure it out, right? So they're trying to maybe even keep track of their child's pain. And if they eat certain things, does it make the pain worse? So they're talking about the pain a lot in the family. Um, Maybe they can't travel anymore because what we you know, don't want to buy plane tickets because what if this person has a pain flare and they can't come? Um, sometimes it's even hard to hang out with family friends. Um, so the, so the, again, the pain just sort of becomes the person's world and then even the family's world um, sometimes and affects sibling relationships, affects the relationship between that person and their parents, but also the other siblings and their parents because parents are often super busy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're often talking about the pain a lot. So then there's not room to talk about all the other things that families um, talk about. We want them to be talking about. So it kind of just becomes, like I said, overwhelming and it becomes the main thing about the family, um, even though that family has so many, excuse me, other attributes that um, and other things to be talking about. You know, just hearing about all this makes me think about the different hats that I wear, both as a parent and as a medical provider, and what role I have in preventing, you know, my children or my patients from their acute pain 
becoming chronic pain? Um, what can we do um, when it's just in that acute phase to really help prevent things from progressing? So um, I think as we as medical providers just I'll start off um, is that we, um, you know, especially if we're having a patient who has a surgical procedure, I think it's really important in the beginning, like I had said, to really approach that in the biopsychosocial model, right? So really being a good advocate as a provider uh, to make sure that the, your patient does get the appropriate pain medications um, and, you know, again, balancing those risks and the benefits. But at mm -hmm. the same time, like we as providers really have to set those good expectations. So I think as a surgeon or as a pediatrician, you know, just for you to reinforce Forced to individuals that, you know, when people complain about pain, we can't expect it to be zero. We mm -hmm. do believe it's real, but we, um, we have to normalize that after surgical procedure, that pain is a little bit of pain is normal. Mm -hmm. And we have to reassure them that we will do everything we can to make it as safely as little as possible, but we also really want to encourage them to getting back into life. And I actually kind of say that because, you know, we want those same expectations. We want the um, patients to be meeting their functional goals of being able to sit out of bed to the chair, walk in the hallways. Um, but even things like, let's make sure you brush your teeth today. Like even when you're in a hospital, make mm -hmm. sure you brush your hair. Like, can you shower? You know, if you need to be in the hospital for a period of time, like, can you start to not wear your hospital gown? Can you like put on a pair of jeans? You know, just that kind of getting back into normal life, I think is very, very important, um, to, um, you know, just kind of uh, let people know that um, that is part of the healing and that is that that pain management part and, you know, do the things like, um, and even as providers for us to be aware of the things that kids can do while they're in the hospital, like go down to the teen room, chat with your friends on the phone, do some fun activities. Um, that's, that's a very important message for us as providers mm -hmm. to give. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What about for parents? What, what role do they have um, in helping prevent this? So you're going to start to hear some themes in what Dr. Harrison <laughs> and I are saying, um, with one of them being that return to functioning. So okay. um, parents and medical providers to work together to, again, if we're in the hospital, what parts can we do? If we're not in the hospital, again, um, what things can we do that resemble some normalcy? So maybe the person can't go to school, but can they still do an hour of homework in the morning and the afternoon? Um, maybe they can't go do an overnight with their friends, but can they um, go visit one friend and hang out for an hour? So kind of what can we do to approach some of that normalcy? Mm -hmm. And then I think there's two other key things that parents can do. The mm -hmm. one thing would be to really limit the focus on the pain. So of course, follow the medical provider's advice. And if the medical provider says we need to um, you know, pay attention to whether this medication is working or not, so we're gonna have to talk about pain a little bit, um, then of course do that. But in between, um, really try to minimize the, the discussion about the pain mm -hmm. and keep talking about all the things that you would normally talk about in your family. Mm -hmm. So if that's extracurricular sports or sports or music or celebrities or whatever it is your family <laughs> likes to talk about, like right. keep that and keep some of the fun, right? Mm -hmm. um, because this pain, it's just a mood buster. Um, it brings everybody down. It's really heavy. Mm -hmm. And so you have to kind of intentionally, okay, what can we do to brighten up the mood? Can mm -hmm. we play cards? Can we watch, you know, cat videos, mm -hmm. whatever, just to, mm -hmm. um, really try to try to bring the mood back up. 
Um, so we've got kind of return to functioning is one. Um, we've got um, kind of don't talk about the pain. Um, the other thing that I would really say is relaxation becomes really important. Um, we know that when somebody has pain, it's first of all stressful, it activates the sympathetic nervous system, which can actually make pain worse. Um, being in a hospital is stressful, not going to school can be stressful. So even early on, um, as a parent, um, can you teach your, your child or your young adult, your teenager, some relaxation strategies? Um, and it might be something that you're not comfortable doing yourself. So reaching out and asking who can help my, my child learn this. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got a young child doing it with them, um, if you've got an older child or teenager, they're not going to want to do it with you probably. <laughs> um, so giving them the space to learn it and practice it, but kind mm -hmm. of encouraging, um, relaxation strategies is also really helpful really at any point in, in the pain journey. Perfect. So what advice would you give to a parent who may suspect that their child is developing chronic pain? Um, so I think um, what's really important in the beginning is, um, as Dr. Harbick Weber had said, is really assuring that there's nothing um, medically that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, the thing is, is that the chronic pain usually comes about and it doesn't, it, 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 it occurs kind of after the healing, but it's always worth it to make sure that your uh, child, adolescent has a good a primary care provider, someone who can really kind of holistically take a look at all of them to make sure that, you know, as I say, nothing big, bad or awful is missing, right? So you want mm -hmm. to make sure um, that, uh, that the, that something that it's evaluated and, and at least treated. The problem is, is that you have to be a little bit careful with that because what happens is um, we'll oftentimes have when uh, patients see physician after physician, they'll sometimes start to get overwhelmed with it. And they themselves are like, are thinking, oh, did I miss something? So then they'll want to go send them to more and more and more specialists. And that's why you really need a good primary care provider to put all of this together in the context, right? You don't want to have four or five EGDs, four or five MRIs, um, unless it's medically necessary. But that can be a tricky thing to sort out. So get that medical evaluation. But then at the same time, I, I think one of the worst things that we can recommend to our children, um, either as providers or um, as parents is, it, it, we should make sure that they still are going to school or still doing some sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. Because when we give them that message or when we tell them, don't go to school because it's, it's, it's school's challenging, it's just, that almost gives the signal to the child that they can't handle it. And it, um, it, it, I mean, because going to school is kind of like the child's work. And so it, it just really has so many profound implications um, for um, children being able to cope with these types of things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think just to add to that, you know, we know that if someone is still having pain after six months, most likely the tissue has healed and this is now chronic pain mm -hmm. um, due to the way the nerves are processing pain rather than tissue damage. And so for a parent to be able to even go to their medical provider and say, we understand we're kind of moving from that acute pain phase to chronic pain, we understand we may need to do things differently now. Mm -hmm. What are those things? Because mm -hmm. I think that can be really powerful if, if a parents or a family are, are saying like, we're ready to move to that new stage rather than, than like, and we need another evaluation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I really want to talk about what are those modalities or what are the effective treatment strategies? What are the options? And is opioids a, an appropriate treatment for chronic pain in, in young uh, children, adolescents, young adults? Uh, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, we're um, for a number of years here at Mayo, we've really been paying attention to that. And then, you know, the whole setting of like the opioid crisis and all of that. Um, we've known for a long time, actually, that um, opioids are not appropriate medications for what we call chronic non-malignant pain. So that's the typical things that we see uh, with uh, patients that have chronic pain, uh, adolescents, the ab uh, abdominal pain, headache, uh, generalized body pain. I mean, a lot of those patients have had negative medical workup uh, and they have not, um, they don't have any kind of a disease process. So opioids are really not a very good medication at all um, to um, be helpful for pain, including things like benzodiazepines are the other ones that you want to stay away from, uh, muscle relaxants. So these can maybe be started, uh, uh, providers do start them initially and then it just kind of persists. So it's, you, I think you have to be really careful not to even, um, you may not even want to consider them in the beginning um, because when it's chronic pain, because it can just be such a, a problem. Uh, but having said that, there are other types of medications that can be helpful for, um, for pain in particular well-controlled trials uh, that your, your doctor helps you with. Um, and so what are some of the strategies that you guys use to help manage the chronic pain in these children? You know, I think, again, medication as warranted and directed by your physician, as mm -hmm. Dr. Harrison mentioned, but the non-pharmacological strategies that we really rely on are ones that we've, we've kind of mentioned already, but relaxation is super important. And as I say that, I acknowledge that if you're somebody who has really severe pain mm -hmm. and someone tells you just do this deep breathing or relax, that it's going to fix it for you, that seems um, incredulous and um, maybe mm -hmm. can even feel invalidating. Mm -hmm. But we have decades of research that show that actually getting into a deep state of relax, relaxation um, reduces pain. And it does so for very, um, for physiological reasons. You can increase your endorphins and, and your encephalins, which are natural pain inhibitors when you get into a deep state of relaxation. So I think um, it's really important to try the non-pharmacological strategies along with the pharmacological strategies. And um, I think some of the patients that do the best are the, are the ones who are open to to both of those options. Um, in addition to relaxation, um, distraction is just a super effective way. And you can distract yourself through kind of returning to um, those kind of normal functioning activities that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. But really any activity that takes a lot of your attention is distracting. So one of the things that we'll sometimes say uh, to young people if they're struggling, you know, like, playing video games. It's actually a great way to get through a, mm -hmm. a pain flare. Right. You can't, you can't play video games eight hours mm -hmm. a day. Right? Oh, shoot. Okay. But I know. <laughs> um, that's what I usually hear. But, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that that does work and that can be part of the treatment package. You can't do deep breathing all day either. So it's mm -hmm. kind of how do we combine that deep breathing or other forms of relaxation with some return to normal activities? Again, mm -hmm. let's get those fun activities in there that are um, that take a lot of attention, whether that's video games or texting your friends or whatever it is gonna be. Mm -hmm. And then the other piece that I think we have to look at a little bit um, 
maybe it's a little bit more long-term, but when people have chronic pain, it creates a lot of stress. Um, we know that stress can make pain worse. Mm -hmm. And so we really do need to look kind of more broadly at what are the stressors in this person's life that either are created by the pain or maybe we're there ahead of time. And what can we do to help the person deal with those? Mm -hmm. So whether it's bullying at school or maybe school is difficult or there's some family stressors, you know, how do we kind of, like I said, take that big picture and, and help, the, help the kids deal with those as well? Excellent. What kind of um, outcomes or hope um, do families and children have at kind of conquering this chronic pain that has caused so much debilitation in their life and getting better? You know, um, so first of all, I want to make sure that people understand that chronic pain can and does get better. Okay. Um, what we see here with our kids at PRC, um, it's fabulous. Mm -hmm. There are people who, you know, have had so much pain, they're in bed, you know, 22, 23 hours a day, mm -hmm. and they leave three weeks later ready to go to school um, and really resume fully. So mm -hmm. um, I know not everybody has access to a PRC program. But I want to I want to give that message that of hope that people can absolutely get better. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we know is that in order to get better, that functioning piece has to happen first. So so many times we're hearing people say, "Well, when I feel just a little bit better, then I can, you know, eat dinner with my family, or then mm -hmm. I can go back to soccer." Um, and what the data really shows, again across decades, is that um, the people who, who make changes in functioning first, so they go back to a more normal uh, activity level, are the ones who do the best. Um, okay. So that change in functioning precedes the change in symptoms. Okay. So they're doing the things functionally that they maybe would find very challenging, but they're kind of, kind of trying to activate themselves to do those things before yep. we'd see improvements. Okay. Yep. And it, and it doesn't mean like one day you just go back to everything no, like right. the next yeah. day, right? Because yeah, that would be yeah. too hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it's really, a, it's a process of figuring out, okay, what are some things I can do today and then, mm -hmm. and then building on it. Okay. So you mentioned the PRC, which stands for Pain Rehabilitation Center. Let's talk a little bit more about that program and what it is um, so families can understand what options might be out there for them and their child that might be suffering from chronic pain. Yes, thanks for asking, because again, this is Dr. Harrison's and my favorite um, thing to talk about. Um, so the PRC, it's a program that's really designed for uh, people ages 13 to 22 experiencing chronic pain and where their pain is, is severe enough that it really is interfering with their ability to function. Most of the time, by the time people come to us, they've already tried medications, maybe even surgeries, they've tried outpatient therapy, and it hasn't been enough for them to get back where they want to be. Mm -hmm. So our program, it's an all day program, eight to four, Monday through Friday. And we really try to create a very fun, supportive environment so the kids can go back to doing some age appropriate activities. Um, as well as we're teaching the pain management strategies and they get PT and well, physical therapy, occupational therapy. Um, there's fun things every day. We're working on relaxation. Um, and so it's, it's a full day to really help them get back to that functioning and learn to, to manage their pain so that their pain isn't controlling them anymore, mm -hmm. right? It may still be part of their life, but it's not controlling them. They're able to still do the things that are important to them kind of in spite of their pain. 
Oh, it sounds like a fantastic program. And I know I've seen a lot of, a lot of successes um, from your program. When would a, a parent or a medical provider, when would they consider a referral to a program like the PRC? Do you want to take that one, Dr. Harrison? I forgot who was. Sure, sure. Um, yep. Yeah. So um, we actually have patients that come in lots of different, um, you know, everyone's individual, you know, everyone's different. We, um, so we would say uh, that if your uh, child, your adolescent is challenged with doing the types of activities that they like to do, typical types of activities, um, such as attending school. I mean, we've said if you've missed school, probably 30 days in a year's period, uh, you should, and it's because of pain or your symptoms that prevent you from living that typical life, then that's a, a good time to be looking for more help. Um, having said that, we've got some very active people that, again, they just want their lives to be different and they feel that pain is really kind of getting in the way of uh, them doing the things that they want to do. They might be attending school, but they want to attend more school. We also have some patients that are haven't been in school for two or three years. So those individuals absolutely need to get some additional, um, additional help mm -hmm. uh, from their provider. Okay. So Dr. Harrison, we had talked a little bit about medications, opioids and, and non-opioid medications not being very appropriate for chronic pain. Um, if patients come in on medication, pain medications during the, during your program, is this something that would be continued? Would this something that be tapered? Uh, yep. Yeah. So um, a lot of patients um, will come in on medications and um, as Dr. Harbuck Weber said, they had tried many, many different things. Uh, some, some patients will have tried to taper medications in the past, and they just find it impossible to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, so the PRC, the pain rehab program, is an absolutely excellent setting for them to be able to taper those medications, um, even the ones that they're thinking about doing, or even the ones that I have looked at and maybe thought that that's not a good medication in the long term. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, polypharmacy is a huge problem. Uh, and and it's a huge problem within the opioid crisis. But even if you're not taking an opioid, you can, we see children, adolescents more and more on more and more medications that um, they, they uh, can't be expected to be on them forever. And there certainly that wasn't the, isn't the initial um, thought. So yes, we do taper them in a very gradual fashion. We have the luxury of seeing them on a continual basis every mm -hmm. single day, um, which again, a lot of primary providers that are tapering medications would love to be in our setting to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, the, the kids are sometimes, uh, uh, around others that are tapering medications. So it's a very, very supportive environment to be able to do that um, when it's a mutually agreed upon uh, goal. Sounds like a very supportive environment. So we're at the, the end of our time and I just wanna leave with one last question. Um, do you know which patients or parents that do best in this type of program? You know, I think it's those um, families who understand that they've had a good medical evaluation and they're really ready to move to that rehabilitation framework mm -hmm. um, and people who just come in open-minded and say, you know, we, we know that what we were doing didn't get us where we want to be. And so we're willing to do things differently. Um, and as long as people come in with that attitude, they tend to do really, really well. Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have. Dr. Harrison and Dr. Harbeck Weber, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise today. Remember, please continue to still practice social distancing where appropriate, wear your masks and get vaccinated against COVID-19 when it's available to you. Have a great day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. 
To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.